Hi everyone, I hope that you all had a lovely August and you weren't missing us too badly. We are back with a brand new episode that was recorded last week before the Queen died. So if it seems dated, what we're talking about, that is why we may well tackle that one on the next episode. But there is zero Queen content on this one, which may come as a relief to some of you. Lesser relief was the fact that Adam's laptop chewed up a bunch of the audio. So the kind of second half of the podcast we've had to cobble together from a much worse quality audio source. So unfortunately, it's not a very good uh, quality of sound and so the editing is not as perfect as I would usually like it to be. Um, I'm pretty sure you can hear me headbutt the microphone on a couple occasions. I think that's what that noise is, but I am open to anyone else's suggestions as to what on earth is happening. You can definitely hear Sarah tidy up the kitchen in the background and various other scratchings and scribblings going on. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but there is some good stuff in there, and we didn't have time to record again, so you'll just have to make do. Uh, Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Bread and Rosaries, the only podcast brave enough to say that Liz Truss seems kind of bad, but from a leftist Christian perspective. I'm Ben Molyneux Heddington, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam Spears. Hello, Adam. Hey, hey, what's going on? Uh, not a lot. I'm uh, basking in the fact that we have possibly, for the first time on the podcast, uh, followed through successfully with saying we're going to take a short break and re-record on this date. And it was exactly as we planned, whereas usually we then just don't record anything for six months. That's true, although um, we haven't finished the episode yet, so maybe we shouldn't count our chickens before they've hatched, you know? That's true, there's every chance I'll forget to edit it before um, <laughs> it's meant to be released, so yeah. Uh, Which should probably just... be better for both of us, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll, I'll just delete this bit if that happens, um, so it'll be fine. Sensible, yeah. yeah. Um, how have you been? It's been a month or so since we put an episode out. Do you know what? It's been quite nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I've been all right. Um, same old, same old. I understand, though, that you've been away. Well, here, there, everywhere. Yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been a busy month, but uh, I am now in uh, one home, which is an appropriate number of houses, in my opinion. So shall we crack in, as always, with what else is on my mind, Grapes? What else is on my mind, Grapes? You mentioned that I have been here, there, and everywhere, and one of the places that I have been gallivanting about to on my travels is uh, my usually annual pilgrimage to Greenbelt. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Greenbelt is um, a Christian festival um, that has uh, been going a number of years. Um, it is probably, to my knowledge, the only kind of liberal Christian festival in this country um, where there's plenty of options for your more conservative or various stripes festivals. It is um, kind of yeah, the for what you might call quote unquote progressive Christianity. It is the kind of the main festival 
and it's made some mistakes <laughs> this year, shall we say. Oh, it's made some mistakes in previous years as well. But... <laughs> it's true, it's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Adam, you've been along a few times. Only once. Oh, you've been the once. Yeah. Um, I've been there most years, have been for a few years now. Obviously, it wasn't on during COVID. Um, this is their first kind of main festival back. Um, and obviously, they wanted to kind of come back with, with a big statement. Unfortunately, the statement they've made <laughs> is not a great one. Uh, there were two kind of major issues. Uh, one was that they invited a number of transphobes to speak. Um, they weren't people that were kind of, you know, mainly known for being transphobes. You know, you weren't getting people that, that kind of made their name in that scene, but people who have expressed um, transphobic stuff, one of whom is the kind of ex-head of one of the prison reform charities and, you know, people that, that were there for legitimate reasons, but, you know, Greenbutt has actually for a long time been very strong on LGBTQ plus issues, particularly trans issues, um, and been very clear that it is, you know, supportive. And so it was, yeah, extremely disappointing to see, see those names kind of crop up. And then the real headline grabber was that they invited Richard Dawkins to come and speak. Obviously, the big thing is, oh, we've got the most famous atheist in the world talking at a Christian festival. And it's obviously, you know, a bit of a attention-grabbing, trying to generate headlines, trying to get a bit of online buzz. It's a, it's a marketing ploy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, they've had plenty of atheists there before, people with, with a profile and, you know... This year they had um, Brian Eno, who was also, was also an atheist, kind of talking about art and his atheism and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it wasn't necessary, but I don't have any issue with them having, you know, deaf people of all faiths and none come and speak. That's that's fine, whatever. Uh, the problem was that it was Richard Dawkins, uh, who is uh, profoundly stupid, um, as evidenced by uh, some of his tweets, which if you haven't seen, I would very much encourage you to go and look up. There are some crackers there. Uh, but also uh, someone who is essentially a eugenicist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I would, I would echo a lot of what you say. I, I think I, I wouldn't mind seeing Richard Dawkins there if it wasn't for the fact that some of the views that he expresses are extremely dangerous. And I think, you know, I think to be fair to Greenbelt, you know, they would try and justify that by saying, well, actually what we did is we didn't just want to give him a, you know, a platform to say whatever the hell he wants, because we know he's a problematic character, but we wanted to get him in conversation with someone. And so they got him in conversation with Giles Fraser. It's so good. That is such a <laughs> stupid, stupid... Like, don't worry, guys. I know you guys are worried about our values and the line that we put out, but actually the eugenicist we're going to temper by having a prominent transphobe introduce him. Oh, thanks. Great, guys. Yeah, yeah. That solved all my concerns. Well, I'm convinced. Yeah, yeah. I'll go next time. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, Giles Fraser is quite an interesting character. Yeah. Um, in a Not in a positive way, but... <laughs> Well, to be fair, in some positive, there are positive things about him. I mean, he, he, his biggest thing he got sort of headlines. I think first, first of all, mm. when he resigned during from as, as canon one of the canons of St Paul's Cathedral because of the way they were treating the Occupy protesters, yeah. you know, evicting them and stuff. And I think that is positive. And it's been all the way downhill ever since that highlight, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pretty much for him. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and most recently he he published an article where basically he went for dinner with J.K. Rowling and at the end of it decided that he was a turf. Um, that is, <laughs> I'm not even like doing a funny summary of it, that is the most accurate one-sentence summary of that article. It's really quite, 
embarrassing how obviously it's like well I went to dinner with someone and they seemed quite nice and now I think they're probably right about things a bit transparent how the whole media circus operates you get chummy with people and suddenly have the same ideas of them because they seem nice over a few bottles of wine um, but yeah to have him you know someone who yeah has expressed some pretty unpleasant views about trans people um, interviewing someone who's a eugenicist didn't seem like the best use of the Greenbelt uh, main stage. No, no, it didn't. And I think the problem is, is that maybe, maybe people just aren't as aware of what Giles Fraser has said. But actually, I think what it is, is that, you know, in spite of the fact that people like us, like, you know, try and be fairly consistent and loud in our support of trans folks, mm. actually, it's still one of the things where it's socially acceptable to be transphobic right yeah there aren't that many things these days where it's acceptable to be outwardly prejudiced against a minority group but that is one of them yeah and i think you know greenbelt is prominently an openly queer space not exclusively so mm. but you know and it, and it has a a if not perfect and a very very good record on queer issues and particularly trans and non-binary um stuff that you know is is one of the reasons why I, I will keep going back. You know, is that and and you know there was actually a fairly decent amount of programming around trans and non-binary issues, some of which was very very good. The problem is exacerbated, I think, by the fact that they position themselves as a festival with very strong you know values that influence everything they do. And you know, some of those values are ones we share. Um, you know, that they are very big on Palestinian advocacy as well, mm -hmm. which was uh, really good. Although the 2019 festival, they did disinvite someone who was a member of Jewish Voice for Labour. Oh, for goodness sake! Over the anti-Semitism <laughs> stuff. Um, and it was one of those things where I'm not a massive fan of Jewish Voice for Labour. But you're going to disinvite someone like who, I mean, if you're in Jewish Voice for Labour, you're Jewish, yeah, like, exactly. apart from anything. Yeah, yeah, but if yeah. you, and you're going to disinvite someone for being a member of that. And they disinvited very explicitly, not because they thought they were an anti-Semite, but because they thought to have someone who was uh, tangentially involved in a group that was controversial within that larger conversation about anti-Semitism would have been, you know, unhelpful. But to invite people who have links to turf movements, to invite a eugenicist, those things are apparently fine. It certainly suggests a lack of joined up thinking. And I think, as I said, I think with the Dawkins stuff, if I'm really honest with you, I think it was a cynical attempt to at publicity. Um, that might be very cynical of me, but I think... Sure, leftists being cynical? Come on. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he was anyone's idea of a really fascinating and worthwhile speaker so much as someone that would get them a lot of bars and attention. There was a radical fringe to Greenbelt and they do have some people who come with some quite radical ideas that even they were partnered with Pluto Press did some sessions this year who are quite a radical kind of publisher and, and there are people anarchist publisher aren't they Pluto Press yeah yeah um, and they you know are there are people involved in doing Greenbelt stuff that do have some kind of radical you know communist anarchist whatever tendencies for its radical kind of edges and desire to see radical, it is fundamentally a, a place with, with broadly liberal politics, mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But, you know, some of the defences around why they invite someone like that is about, well, conversation and hearing lots of voices. Um, and actually, you know, I think that is ultimately a, a failure of liberalism that is not just 
present in Greenbelt is to recognise that actually there are forms of speech that are actively harmful. We have to, yeah, police that in, in some ways. Well, I don't like the word police there, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Deal with that in some ways. Um, wow, I can't believe I'm on the, on the yeah, podcast yeah. With, a, with a cop. Yeah. And that's why I joined the Metropolitan Police to oh, hate crime. <laughs> um, yeah. Ugh. So our final bit of mind grapes, which will lead us directly into the main topic of today, is the news that we have a new Prime Minister. I, for one, welcome our new Liz Truss overlords. We're just about to get our first pictures from inside the spacecraft with average, not Homer Simpson. And we'd like to... Ah! Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've just lost the picture, but uh, what we've seen speaks for itself. The Corvair spacecraft has apparently been taken over, conquered, if you will, by a master race of giant space ants. It's difficult to tell from this vantage point whether they will consume the captive Earthmen or merely enslave them. One thing is for certain, there is no stopping them. The ants will soon be here. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. I'd like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality, uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others to toil in their underground sugar caves. Adam, how are you going to be uh, supporting Liz as she makes our country great again? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, maybe I'll personally fly the charter planes to Rwanda. Um, do you think... Uh... Well, well, Pretty Patel's gone, right? She's quit. So probably, <laughs> maybe that's what she's a, doing, right? A liberal, yeah. humane asylum policy now would be great. Well, except I don't think there's any chance of that, to be honest. No, because... I'm being very sarcastic, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some, but, but some people, in all seriousness, have have suggested that. They have suggested that maybe now Liz Truss is, because Liz Truss tries to position herself as being, you know, socially liberal. Does she? That's that's what she claims to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, remember, yeah, sure. this is this is a woman who, who was in the Liberal Democrats, right, at university. Yeah. But she's always been neoliberal you know a thatcherite basically yeah. on um on, on economics and sort of positioned herself at least as socially progressive um which you know is nonsense we, you know we can we can see how much that's nonsense just by looking at her record and and one of those things is is how strongly she advocated for the rwanda policy so i don't you know it'd be nice if if she did drop that maybe she will uh, maybe it was just sort of bluster because she was in the shadow cabinet at the time and felt like she had to do that, had to toe the party line. It doesn't really care who who suffers and dies because of it. Um, so maybe she will drop it, but I you don't hold your breath, basically. I think the, the other thing I would say as well is we should probably talk about Liz Truss and religion because as with sort of many recent prime ministers, she basically does this thing of sort of positioning herself as, you know, essentially little more than culturally Christian. She says, I share the values of the Christian faith and the Church of England, but I'm not a regular practicing religious person. So I'm reading an article here by the Christian Post. They might be awful. I don't know. But, you know, it's talk about how she ran afoul of um, Church of England officials by justifying illegally flying people to Rwanda who are coming here trying to seek asylum or whatever and you know her she defended that as being and i quote completely legal and completely moral wrong on both counts yeah exactly exactly and i think um 
I think at that point, if you are claiming to agree with the values of the Christian faith, I, I think you have a very blinkered view of what the values of the Christian faith are. Well, that is, I guess, what our main topic is going to be today, is actually to talk a little bit about the role that uh, Christianity as a kind of idea and identity plays in in politics in this country um because there is an interesting thing where you know i remember um when nick clegg and clegg mania happened um, and there was a few kind of think pieces or whatever um basically saying clegg is a uh someone who openly describes as an atheist um and you know our people uh, ready for a kind of atheist prime minister. Answer clearly was not, because um, he was a Lib Dem. And the people <laughs> can tolerate atheists, but not Lib Dems. Um, but, you know, there was a sense of, will people trust someone who is openly an atheist and all this sort of stuff? Well, that was quite some time ago now. But um, there is that kind of idea, I think. And what you get instead is what you've had for a number of prime ministers now, which is people that are kind of nominally christian to a varying extent um so truss you know described herself as not a regularly religious person um both boris johnson and david cameron used the same kind of little quip which was that their faith was like uh, magic fm in the chilterns the signal fades in and out theresa may i think was an anglican um or is an Anglican. Yep. No, uh, yeah, and her dad's a priest. But never really made much of a kind of public show of it. And you also had, uh, you know, Brown, who, similar thing. Was he also the son of a, a, a priest of some sort? He was a Scottish Presbyterian. Presbyterian, I, I yeah. think so. I don't, I don't know. But um, uh, but again, yeah. someone uh, with devout faith who never really made much of it. No, had- but what I, what I will say, though, about... Theresa May is you say she never made much of it and I think that's broadly true but actually she wasn't she certainly wasn't against that she would definitely use that as as a way to try and foster um support and votes and stuff yeah I I think probably a bit more than than Brown and certainly someone like Blair Jesus weeps for Gaza He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. 
the very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Well, Blair is an interesting case, right? Because, you know, he is was quite a, a someone with strongly held Christian beliefs, even if we would probably take issue with most of his beliefs. And, you know, there was that famous quote from Alistair Campbell about uh, we don't do God. Um, and then more interestingly, Blair essentially wanted to convert to Catholicism, but waited until leaving office because he didn't know how it would play, um, which is an interesting comparison with Johnson, who um, actually... So Boris Johnson was, was baptised Catholic, but kind of became Anglican. But when he married uh, Carrie Johnson, he married her in Westminster Cathedral. I think she's Catholic. Um, and he converted, was was readmitted to the Catholic Church, was in fact a, a Catholic. Right, so it's an interesting thing where he wasn't allowed to be involved in... Uh, the appointment of Anglican bishops anymore because um, it is illegal for a Catholic to advise the monarch on Anglican bishops and to do so uh, he would ha- if he was caught doing so he'd have to immediately leave office. I don't think so, that's is that the case anymore. Yeah, it's still the case. It's still the case because yeah. I know they obviously changed the law so that Catholics could become prime minister. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because he was um, the first. Uh, Prime Minister who was a Catholic whilst being Prime Minister, because uh, um, Blair obviously converted a little while after. But yeah, it is still no person professing the Catholic religion is uh, allowed to advise the monarch on the appointment of Anglican bishops, uh, and it would be a high misdemeanour to do so. Um, so he would be banished from office if he did that. So it's quite a um, just an odd little thing that actually he was... Uh, one function of the prime minister was actually taken away from him as a result of him converting to Catholicism. Maybe we should have we we should have more Catholic prime ministers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what you have is a succession of people who had or professed some sort of Christian faith and either were relatively I don't like to use this word but nominal about it or downplayed the sincerity of their faith. Um, which is obviously a marked contrast to our American friends, um, where obviously mobilising uh, evangelical voters is a big part of right-wing strategy over there. But yeah, in this country, there, there has been a sense that people are less keen to uh, emphasise their Christianity as a political tool. However, I don't think that it is as simple as that it doesn't have a role to play uh, within politics um, and certainly the kind of identity and idea of Christianity still plays a really large role, as we see with uh, Liz Truss saying that she agrees with the values of Christianity. Yeah, and I think where this shows actually, I think, is in organisations like 
Christians on the left, like Christians in Parliament and so on, that still actually play quite a big role in parliamentary life, I guess you might call it. Um, I think I saw something earlier today that said the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast, which I think we we talked about before, um, which is organised by um, Christians in Parliament, which are cross-party cross parliamentary grouping, is, is, I think they said, the biggest sit-down meal or something um, in the parliamentary calendar. Um, so it's still... It's still quite a big deal, at least in Parliament. Just a fun fact that I found on researching this earlier. Uh, 2018 National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast. Would you like to guess who the keynote speaker was? So you usually get reasonably well-known people. You had Sarah Mullally previously. You had a number of other people that you'd probably probably heard of. Oh, I think I know. Yeah, go on. I think I know. It was Tim Timothy Keller, wasn't it? It was indeed uh, Tim Keller, uh, Every worst Christian's favourite theologian, <laughs> um, and they had uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, who famously wrote "In Christ Alone," uh, doing the music as well. Um, to be fair, that is a bit of a banger. Uh, yeah, as long as you ch- change the the lyrics. Oh, bit. sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but like that's the case with a lot of Christian. Like, usually when we mention a song, I suggest we'll then play it out on it, but uh, I'm not going to do that. No, 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 no. 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 Um, yeah, no. So Christians in Parliament remain quite a powerful um, thing, and they are, yeah, very much cross cross party. You know, you have people from the DUP. There is one of their vice presidents as a DUP person, which is obviously quite a um, extreme political position. Position, shall we say? Um, <laughs> yeah. For whatever reason, they do not have any uh, Sinn Fein. Uh, vice president can't can't think why. I no. uh, don't know what's going on with that. Um, no, but they are, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, quite a, um, a surprisingly powerful little thing. And with all these sorts of stuff, you know, everyone knows that going to the prayer breakfast is is actually not really about prayer. It's it's about networking. It's about your career. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. You get to meet people. Yeah, and I suppose the, the question that always comes comes back to me is what what is the point of Christians in Parliament? You know what? What is the the value of it? I could maybe accept that there is a value in having a space for Christians or varying political stripes to spend some time together. You know, in a kind of spirit of siblinghood. I mean, isn't that what the church is for, though? Yeah, but it... like, if you're going to do this in a in a specifically political like environment, like I I I really struggle because because as I said before, they cross party parliamentary group and what a cross-party parliamentary group is is a group that works together across party on an issue like a single issue that they're all interested in where they can find some agreement and i'm like okay so your single issue is christianity like what what is your goal here what is your end goal and actually um a lot of it is that their end goal is to make christ known And i'm like fine but we need more than that you know yeah, and it, but even it's the question: Well, what does that actually mean? You know, yeah, what, what, exactly, you know, exactly. What does you know? I I don't think I've ever seen anyone stand up and do an altar call in Parliament, right? Like it's not well, not in the not in the chamber, but I mean, you know, some of the prayers that are led and some of the the ideas that I've seen in in interviews and stuff. I think it was, I saw an interview with Tim Farron. He's one of the vice presidents. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll bet he is. I'll bet he is. But I think he, he was talking about how the National Prayer Breakfast is uh, an opportunity because a lot of the MPs and stuff who are invited there will never have heard the gospel before. And I'm like, what? Tim, mate, like, what world are you living in? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like... I mean, I guess it depends on what you consider the gospel to be, because I guess on one level I agree, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure. But I'm not sure Tim Farron's heard the gospel. That's the difference. The gospel of our Lord and Savior Karl Marx. <laughs> wow. Okay. Heresy heron being raised there. I mean, I you know I will joke and jest about that kind of thing as well. Um, but the fact of the matter is, when Christians have been turning their back on a lot of the values and morals um, and and practices that were implemented by Jesus and by uh, you know early Christians. Who was it who was upholding some of those morals and values? It, you know, fine in often deeply imperfect ways, but it was socialists, it was communists, it was anarchists who were actually engaging with these deep uh, systemic structural issues that affect people. You know, at the most fundamental level and the most personal level it was they who were holding the fort and so on one level yes the gospel of our lord and savior Karl marx yeah and i think there's something as well about ultimately when you get down to it if you're if it's about you know spreading the gospel making christ known that there's a real question about what is that something that should be happening yeah in, in parliament i know we have an established church and eventually for me i can't quite distinguish between the logic that underpins something like christians in parliament from a actively Christian supremacist logic, yeah, you know what, what, what is it about being Christian that that actually binds you together? And it, it kind of feels like it's it has to be oppositional at some point, right? It has to be, yeah. Well, we're not those damn atheists or Muslims or whoever else there's anyone in the parliament these days. Well, I think especially at that level as well, you know, when you're when you're literally sat face to face with the people who are making policy, the people who are making the policies that are destroying people's lives, how can you sit down and have breakfast with those people in any serious way, at, at least without being fairly adversarial about that? Yeah. But I think a lot of these people, they'll be adversarial in the chamber, but then be mates outside. And I'm like, no, I'm not for that. Yeah, it's all it's all play acting, isn't it? Like, it's, yeah. it's not, yeah. It's political it's a... theatre. Again, it's... it's mm. You know, we return to it fairly regularly, but it is political theatre. And I think, you know, the reality is actually ultimately what it is probably mostly about is is careers and networking, you know? Yes. And, and it's the same in a lot of different fields. The reality is, you know, having all sorts of, you know, I'm sure there are, uh, like this, I know this, like the legal profession has its Christian thing and, you know, social workers have a Christian organisation or whatever else. Uh, and actually a lot of that is really about, oh, all Christians, that means all the good guys, all on the same page. Oh, yeah, 100%. And therefore we can we can network together and then, you know, you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Well, we've, we've seen that by the way mm. right so th that attitude is pervasive and runs all the way through society like christian society right and we've seen that i mean we both had when we met we met because you moved in um to the house where i, I was um already living and the landlords that we have and i'm quite comfortable saying this because um <laughs> you know yeah. um, al although every interaction i had with them was 
personally friendly and and fine actually they still owe me about 500 quid so they owe me a lot of money anyway as as their former tenant and i was asking for that for literal years after moving out of the place and every time they'd sort of come back and say oh yeah yeah no we're sorting some stuff out and you know i just gave up after a while because you know i can't make that part of my life but their whole thing with with me at least was they were making out that they were doing me a favor by letting me live in this house because I was a Christian and they were Christians. Hmm. And I'm like, maybe that's true. Maybe you do see it that way. But actually, there was, A, a lot of problems with that house. Um, B, you still owe me a lot of money now. And, and C, that relationship was an exploitative one. Yeah, as I say, that kind of thinking of of Christians think that other Christians are always great and they're going to do them a favor goes so far and and basically is used as a way for them to justify their their own actions. But actually, what they were getting out of that situation was money. Yeah, and, and uh, I remember having email exchanges with them where they basically would send the emails going, uh, "We're not going to do jack shit about how how horrible the house is. Sorry, not sorry." Yeah, uh, and then they would finish these emails with "God bless or yours in Christ," <laughs> uh, and it was so obvious the way that that was functioning as a "I'm allowed to do this because you have to be nice to me because we're both Christians." Yeah, and we should probably lay out just how awful that house was. That was one of the worst houses houses I've ever lived in. Yeah, by far the worst place I've ever lived. Yeah, yeah. I I lasted the exact length of my contract there and then left. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was it was bad. It was bad, and actually, you know, actually, a lot of it was illegal as well. Well, the, they were they were known to the local council. We found out later, yeah, um, yeah. for being bad landlords. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not a good situation. I mean, I regularly woke up in the night and found slugs crawling up my guitars, and you know, that kind of thing. And probably about half the house was taken up with their stuff i found used nappies in the garden oh lovely yeah they're horrible place so slum landlords basically yeah yeah pretty much yeah it is ultimately about you know the assumption that well we're all christians so we must all be doing good but as you say when you've got people that are you know people like the dup or whoever yeah what good are they doing does it matter that they're a professed christian if their impact on the world is horribly negative. And actually, if it does, if that matters to you, are you not saying ultimately that you'd rather have a, a bad Christian than a good Muslim or a, a good Sikh or a good Jewish person, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah, as you yeah. say, ultimately, it all comes back to this Christian supremacist logic. You know, Christianity is the superior religion. And, you know, we won't go into this in too much depth, but... The, the roots of that are the same roots of colonialism, of imperialism. You know, the idea that that civilising nations comes from that same idea that it is better if people are Christians. The thing is, though, Ben, there is one area where I'll disagree with you, and that is that I would still rather have Nigel Dodds, who is the uh, former deputy leader of the DUP and a professing Christian at the prayer breakfast and so on, I'd still rather have him than Nick Clegg. (laughs) Yeah. I've got more respect for him than I've got for Nick Clegg. organization that you mentioned that are slightly more interesting i think are uh, christians on the left 
they were known as the Christian Socialist Movement. So they are, you know, the essentially the Christians in Labour organisation. It is a affiliated society. Um, so I won't go into too much depth with the uh, Labour Party <laughs> way it works, but they are essentially a part of the Labour Party. But they are more than that as well, though. It's important to say that they sort of transcend that boundary of just labor as well because well, i mean they, they they say they do <laughs> i mean they they are like you know like don't get me wrong like i'd say sort of 90 percent of what they are is that but they're not that they've got members who are abroad and yeah, stuff yeah as well so like you know they would argue that they're not but like they they are yes society affiliation is is not as direct as being a member of of the labor party so yes i mean they brag on their website that um 15 of keir starmer's shadow cabinet as of april 2020 uh it's not 15 percent, but 15 of the members of keir starmer's shadow cabinet are members of christian on the left well that's a uh, yeah, terrible indictment of Christians on the left, right? <laughs> it um, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, they, so they're obviously quite an interesting organisation because um, they, they are reasonably uh, prominent. They hold some amount of soft power within the party as well as some hard power as an affiliated society. Yeah, in some ways you'd look at them and think that they are just kind of, yeah, the Labour Christians Association. But that's not kind of all they are. Um they are explicitly uh, the, and it says here on their constitution, the natural home of Christian socialism and the inheritor of the Christian socialist tradition in the United Kingdom, which is quite a, um, I don't know, that's a bold claim. Definitely a bold claim. And it's probably worth pausing here to uh, spell out what Christian socialism is a little bit. Yes. Because... Uh, people listening to this were probably thinking, ah, Christian socialists, like you two are. And if you ever run into Adam in real life, call him a Christian socialist because it will drive him mad. <laughs> um, uh, we won't go into any depth of it, but Christian socialism is actually a very specific branch of socialist thought. In the UK, it's important to say, yeah. Yes. Uh, it is explicitly non-Marxist, so it is um, bad. Um, Anti-Marxist, I would even argue. And, yeah. I mean, it has its foundations in um countering uh continental socialism uh that was basically um marxist and it didn't want marxist values to come into the uk that's that's where it comes from so obviously yeah we we would say as um as as, as people that are i don't know if you'd call yourself a marxist i would not i wouldn't call myself a marxist no but but you'd, you'd say you're indebted to, to Marx to an extent. I mean, I'd, I mean, I wouldn't... If someone called me a Marxist, I wouldn't say I'm not a Marxist because, mm. like, there's a lot of stuff that I agree with Marx. I think he was really important. And You've probably guessed, but this is where Adam's audio goes nuts. He was just saying that he appreciates Marx but wouldn't call himself a Marxist. Yeah, I mean, the closest you might come to that is you might call me an autonomous Marxist or something, and I'd be like, mm, yeah. Uh, all right. It is the most important thing in all left-wing thought to have as many different micro-labels as possible. <laughs> possible yeah, yeah, concept. Yeah, um, yeah but you yeah. Know, obviously we would, as people that are yeah, indebted in, to Marx to some extent in our thoughts, we would, we would obviously oppose that. But I think it's quite interesting to note that it essentially means that it is not just an organisation of Christians in the Labour Party, but actually is explicitly part of a specific and quite narrow tradition. 
um, that would exclude, you know, someone like me who is a Christian and in the Labour Party from from at least technically speaking being part of it because I wouldn't be able to support their official aims. Yeah, I mean that's. I think there are some things that they do and that they advocate because they're they're kind of a campaign group as well. Um, and some of their campaigns are, you know, all right. You know, yeah. I mean the. I I think I would say it's certainly not a solution, but I would broadly support a Robin Hood tax, which there is one of their campaigns, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they're talk- always talking about, like, debt justice and that kind of thing as well. So, like, a lot of their stuff, they're, they're tapping into issues that are very important issues and that they're offering solutions or ideas around some of those issues that aren't the worst. Um, but actually, they're doing that in a broader um, sort of philosophical framework that ultimately isn't going to be looking for bigger solutions to these things. So I, I guess I would give, I would only ever be able to give qualified support to particular campaigns. Yeah, I think one of the things you see is, so there's a bit of a thing where churches in the UK will, will want to avoid being too party political um, in order to, um, you know, not alienate people, not get people upset and all that sort of thing. So even if they do make political interventions, which actually on a kind of smaller level, a lot of the time they won't anyway, they will avoid doing it in a party political way. Um, and I think you get almost the reverse of this with organisations like this. I think you see it with things like Christian Aid as well, where they obviously have explicitly political campaigns or whatever, but they're therefore really keen to appeal to as wide a range of Christians as possible. Yeah. So, you know, to my mind, I struggle to see how you can be on the left in a meaningful sense, and I would argue that a lot of people in the Christians on the left are on the left. But anyway, and be <laughs> yeah, a, and be an evangelical, certainly conservative evangelical. You know that there are people involved in Christians on the left who are explicitly anti-gay marriage. Um, I, I'm thinking of Stephen Timms, who we've spoken about before, yeah. who is a Labour MP, who uh, threatened to quit the shadow cabinet many years ago if you if there wasn't a free vote on same-sex marriage uh which is obviously a really shitty thing to do um and you know people like that are involved in it um and they they will never challenge uh bad forms of christianity bad theologies because it might cause them issues in trying to get as many people as possible to support their political aims Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that is something that really prevents them from I don't know, living out their values in a consistent way, right? You know, if you claim to have, you know, they they call themselves democratic socialists. But if you're democratic socialists, then I'm sorry, you can't be having homophobes and, you know, people like that knocking around in your ranks. That's not... I mean, the problem is that democratic socialism has lost has lost it all meaning, really. I Mm. mean, you know, when you've got... um, People like, I mean, even Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist. He's not a democratic socialist. He's a a, a social democrat, right? Um, yeah. And there's an important difference that we have just lost now. Most people imagine, most people imagine socialism actually um, to essentially be what we would consider a you know a soft form of capitalism. Yes. But that's not what socialism is. But that's mm. it's almost become the meaning now because so often that's what people think that it means. A democratic socialist is someone who wants to work towards a communist society in a in a democratic way, uh, or, or you know, by using the um, the tools and and levers of of um, representative democracy, um, and then arguably sort of direct democracy as well. Um, in order to achieve something bigger and better 
um, that that is post-capitalist, right, at the very least. But now people think that that just means, oh, look at the Nordic model, you know? <laughs> um, yes. Yes, and both for uh, state and also sex work, the Nordic model is very, very bad. Also, though, the Nordic model, when people sort of... Um, imagine that it's this wonderful thing it for for many people you know it, it's certainly better than what we've got here right however it's really important to remember that the nordic model is as much as we are predicated on neo-colonialism and uh in many cases colonialism of of sort of previous of, of a sort of older kind right and so the nordic model might be good for some, not all, people um, in the countries that have adopted it, but it is absolutely terrible for people in the global south. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I want to talk about with Christians on the left is that they have something called the Political Leadership Programme. Uh, it's formerly known as the Political Mentoring Programme. Um, and so it's an application, it's a year that you can do, that you can apply for if you are a member of the Christian left. Um, and it's essentially a kind of developing a new generation of leaders. You've seen hundreds of these different ones. Um, this one is one of the less egregious ones. I don't think you have to pay for it, which some of the weirder Christian ones do make you do. But it is, yeah, essentially they are trying to develop political leaders um, and invest in them and all that sort of stuff. And on one level, you think, oh, that sounds fine. But then the question becomes again, what, why is it important these people are Christians? What, what is it about them being Christians that is going to make it appropriate to exclude people of any other faith or no faith from this process? You know, if you think that you can make politics a better place by investing in people, teaching them skills and uh, giving them opportunities and helping them network, then why limit that to just Christians unless on some fundamental level you believe in the inherent superiority of Christianity? And again, the logic just leads you down a Christian supremacist path. I think it's also probably important to at least briefly mention uh, another organisation, Christians in Politics, um, who basically work sort of, as you were sort of saying before, in a way that is sort of working outside of the parliamentary system, but trying to get people to engage with it. Um, and, and, you know, more broadly than that as well, to, to be fair to them. Um, and again, it's another one of these groups, unlike Christians on the left, which is um, sort of party political, uh, but not entirely bound by that. Um, Christians in politics is a, a it 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 works across political parties. Um, and again, you know, similar questions arise as soon as you sort of look into them. Because their whole idea is trying to get people to engage with politics, and it's like, well, why? Yeah. You know, what? What? Why are we trying to get people to engage in the political system for the sake of upholding that political system? You know, what is it that? Because I think there's an that's the thing is that there's an assumption, and I think this is an assumption that we find a, a, across um, 
broadly speaking, across Christian denominations in this country, certainly in the Church of England, where we both find ourselves, um, for better or worse, is that there's an assumption that the the systems and structures that we've got are the way things should be. And that we therefore need to uphold them as being something that is good and something that is godly and holy. Um, I disagree with that. Um, that's why actually I'm, you know, don't call myself a Christian socialist, as we mentioned before. Um, but again, it's that same ideology underpinning um, this group as underpins a lot of uh, groups and a lot of the ways of thinking about um you know the engagement between christianity and politics that we see um with these groups um so yeah i think that would be uh, certainly my broad critique of that is why because the why the answer to the why never goes much further than actually trying to um claim goodness and, and uphold on that basis um the system uh, as we have it the status quo um and i i think that's really where a lot of the danger lies with these groups yeah and i think in the big picture rather than it being a case that these are organizations that are uh taking politics and um you know using it to push christian ideas and that that can be positive right if we take a certain conception of christian ideas actually what you're getting is that the political system as an entity is essentially taking christianity and molding it to its own purposes you know christianity is is a tool that is being used to uphold the status quo um and i think you know that that is not what individual people within those organisations are trying to do. That's not necessarily what those organisations are set up to do, but it's the imagination. But that is the actual impact that, that they are having. That is the way that they are being used, is as tools of the system uh, to keep itself in place. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'd want to sort of also say that, as, as I sort of said with Christians on the left, some of their campaigns are good and some of the people working within it, I'm sure, are, are good people um, and nice people and whatever. Um, but that's that's not the point of these things. You know, we don't, I don't know about you, Ben, but like I don't sit here on this podcast um, spouting off our, our lefty um, nonsense each time we record in order to just sort of point the finger at people and say uh, what awful people these are like because i don't i don't believe that i think a lot of the people who are involved in these things are often genuinely good and lovely people who genuinely want to to do good but um when you are when you've bought into the system as it is hook line and sinker um and you end up kind of joining these organizations and and basically going along with their ideological presuppositions even if you're the nicest and most caring person in the world you're not going to see a the damage that that could be doing um, and b the solutions that might um, be provided otherwise yeah and i think you know you talk about you know why we're sitting doing this podcast one of the things for me is about that idea that the kind of tragedy of Christian engagement in politics a lot of the time is that there is a you have a Christian person and their sincere faith propels them to engage in political action of some form um, 
in service of the values that they have drawn from their faith. And, you know, let's assume, let's be generous and assume those are positive values, you know, justice for the oppressed. And that's really good and positive. But unfortunately, the same Christianity that motivated them then actually acts to to limit their uh, ability to make change or at least their conception of what change is good or appropriate to make. And so, you know, you've got this wonderful thing where their Christian faith encourages and you know pushes people into political action but then at the same time that same christian faith is utilized in a way that prevents them from undertaking the real political work that needs to be done and the hope is that we can encourage that that first step because i think not universally because there are people who are notified motivated by their faith to do awful things uh, like be a member of the conservative new year's party but um you know in cases where there is positive you know, things being encouraged by people's faith and their engagement in politics, we want to say, well, that's really good, um, but actually let's give people the the tools and the ability to uh, move past the limiting aspects of the Christianity that has been handed down to them. Yeah, and actually I think one way you can you can see this in action um, t- today, on this very day, um, and, you know, the last few days, is, um, you know, go and, go and Google... Christian leaders and their responses to having a new prime minister, right? Because what it is, yeah. is they'll all be sort of offering their prayers to her and they'll all be these fairly milk toast. you know, they're not even necessarily prayers that I fundamentally disagree with, but they're prayers that are so limited and boring and, and you know, uncreative in their response that you wonder why they're being offered at all, you know? Um, to me, if I pray, yeah, I would pray for the new prime minister. But I will pray for the new prime minister to be torn down from her job because I think that's the most Christian thing that could happen. And, and you know, I say torn down. It's very graphic language. Um, but that is the call of the gospel on us. Right. Um, and I don't mean, you know, going and chopping her head off or whatever. Um, but what I mean is that certainly some form of revolution, you know, very deep systemic change needs to happen and it's not going to be Liz Truss who decides to make that happen yeah absolutely and you know you said all oh, people will uh, you know get I don't know it might be funny about the language you've used there but it's extremely biblical right um, yeah yeah you know I'm thinking of the uh, Magnificat and it's yeah. very uh, specific he has cast down the mighty from their thrones you know that is an explicitly Christian thing to pray directly from the Bible um yeah I think it's absolutely right that um yeah you look at the responses from church leaders and they are yeah as you say milk toast um but I also think you know those responses demonstrate the limiting uh aspects of christianity in that uh you know pushing your church leaders to say more radical things in response is all well and good there's nothing wrong with that but that isn't the whole picture you know writing letters to ump is all well and good there's nothing wrong with that but actually those things there's a limited set of political tools that christianity or at least the kind of mainstream Christianity presents as legitimate, um, whereas actually there are other tools, uh, some of which we maybe shouldn't talk about in their publicly published podcast, <laughs> that are totally legitimate and deeply Christian in many ways. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of that episode we did about the God Who Riots last time out, mm-hmm. and all of that sort of thing um, that are excluded by that conception of Christianity. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, the you, you've mentioned um, Magnificat. Um, I want to I want to read from something as well, actually, that that really speaks to to this and speaks to these uh, solutions and these ideas. And and that is that you know one of the first things that Jesus does um, when he begins his ministry um, is that he goes into the synagogue. Right. He um, he stands up to read, and he unrolls the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah, and he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolls up the scroll, gives it to the attendant and sits down. And I'm like, it's like, you know, that those things where you see see people say something and then people will comment, oh, where did he stutter? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I read that and I'm like, this is radical, mm. right? Like, like this is radical for now. Yes. You know, freedom for the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, like f- freedom for the prisoners, right? Yeah. And and we're sat here saying, oh, you know, um, uh, Liz Truss is taking on the great burden of leadership and may she lead the country through these hard times. And I'm like, no, <laughs> we're beyond that. You know, we're beyond that both in terms of you know where we find ourselves as a society today and and as christians in terms of what jesus's message has been for us the whole time right he does he's not he's not screwing about do you know what i mean you know he's not there offering these kinds of prayers he's saying this is what we're declaring yeah absolutely we're fast running out of time but the one final thing i want to talk a little bit about so i mentioned at the start the various statements of faith that, or about faith that uh, prime ministers have made, um, and that kind of consistent either playing down or vaguing of the uh, of their personal faith, and um, you know you rather suspect that at least one or two of them, um, in reality, are are not religious at all, but feel like they uh, should at least uh, give that impression. And I, I, I'm wondering, uh, you know. If you have any thoughts about what is meant to be signified by that, because you know, yeah. I, my immediate thought is that there's a middle classness to particularly that, con- you know, the kind of Anglican uh, vibe, even if not explicitly Anglican, of kind of believing in God but not really making a big deal out of it, seems to sit within a certain conception of being middle class. But what do you think people are kind of trying to politically communicate when they are? you know, doing that whole, well, I kind of believe in God and I'm a Christian, but I'm not that into it. Yeah. 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 Uh, It's a dog whistle, actually, um, I would argue. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. There's a middle classness to it because the the churches are by and large uh, frequented by, you know, social elites and middle class people. But there's a there's a deeper, more nefarious underbelly to it um that i think is a dog whistle to the far right and i think the the evidence shows this it is saying that this is our culture these are the values uh this is what christianity means to us it is the history it is the culture that is our culture and is our history um and people who don't share in that culture and share in that history those people are the other and they are the enemy and often the enemy within, right? 
And yeah. so I think that is a clear dog whistle to certainly to the far right um and and to others you know sort of a bit a bit you know not not as far right as well um but that is you know you see a lot of these uh far right groups um you know i'm thinking groups like britain first groups like that who will utilize the symbols the so even some of the language of christianity um in order to fight a cultural battle against people they perceive as outsiders. And that, of course, you know, that is massively contrary to um, certainly to pretty much everything Jesus ever said and to one of the most important threads you find through the Hebrew Bible as well. Like it is it is anti-biblical, I would argue, even if you can find threads of it at times um, in the Bible. You know, the Bible calls itself out on that kind of thing before these people ever get to it um and so i think when you see politicians especially right-wing politicians sort of playing up their christian credentials on one level um but then also perhaps sort of talking about it in a sense of um it being a cultural thing rather than a you know deeply held religious conviction i, I think a lot of it is is that or, or at least that is one of the functions that it has even if an unintended one yeah and i think as well there's something isn't there about that sense of national identity being very bound up yeah. in christianity and yes you know to profess non-belief in christianity or to profess another religion uh i think people on a kind of conscious level would say yeah no i'm fine with that i don't have any problem with it but on a subconscious level they are primed by various far-right forces but also by the you know media forces and you know neoliberal forces in general to read that subconsciously as not being part of 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 the in group of of being mm-hmm. not british in some fundamental way yes. or even not english in some fundamental way uh, and i'd say i don't think that people are necessarily explicitly saying i don't want a non-christian uh, as prime minister in fact the opposite there's a majority of the public say that they would happily have a non-Christian prime minister. Uh, but what I do think is that Christianity is so tightly entwined with national identity that when someone is uh, not, at least to an extent, associating themselves with Christianity, they are uh, implicitly rejecting British identity in the subconscious imaginings of people. Yeah, I think it's this thing of, you know, Christianity has occupied you know a a key role in the development of culture over the last you know in in europe over well over the last 2000 years really people find it very difficult to see you know if we if we're going to sort of focus in to see britain and and england um as anything other than tied up in that and i think what people need to realize is that actually when you read the gospels when you see what jesus said the most christian thing you can do when someone is trying to create something or argue against a kind of culture that sees itself as you know in some way fundamentally christian 
the most important thing you can do is to realize a that that is not that's not the case um and that actually you know when you see people um disagreeing with that you shouldn't then your first response shouldn't then be to defend christianity right the most christian response a lot of the time when people are, are criticizing christianity is to stop defending it is to just let them have that critique of christianity yeah absolutely i think that about wraps us up for the episode uh, thank you for sticking around with us while we took our little break um, it's been lovely to be back uh, you can find us in all the usual podcast feedy places. We are on facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. We are Twitter at bread underscore rosaries. And you can email us bread and rosaries at gmail.com. Adam, where in the world can people find you? You can find me uh, in various places at commiexian. Thank you very much for listening. Do get in touch if you have anything you want to say to us, and we will see you next time. Cheers, Adam. Cheers. See you later. You can